Let me invite you now to, on this special Easter Sunday morning, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And our reading today will be verses 50, the 15th chapter, verses 50 through 58. But the focus of the sermon will be verses 54 through 58. Hear now the living, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. It truly is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to pierce asunder between the joints and the marrow and is a critic of the thoughts and motives and intents of our heart. We pray today that your word would work in us by your spirit. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would enable both the one who preaches and the one who hears, that we might hear your truth, rejoice in it, embrace it, and embody it as we live after we leave. And this we pray in Christ's name, amen. So today we're talking about the great swallower, which is death, has now been swallowed up by one greater, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the hope of the Christian. And when we talk about hope, it's a much stronger concept when the Apostle Paul speaks of a life of hope uh, than what we mean usually when we use the word hope. Paul is talking about something utterly different than what we think of when we think of the word hope. One of the problems with the word is that the English word hope is a very weak word, very weak. When we talk about hoping so, if I hope so means I'm not really sure. But in the Bible, the word hope refers to this. Christian hope, according to the Bible, 
is a joyful conviction, a rock-solid joyful conviction on the basis of compelling evidence. What Paul tells us here very simply is, is that Christians have a hope that enables them to face anything, including the ultimate thing for most people, and that is death. What does that mean? Well, it means that those of us who have this hope have an unsinkableness about us. We have a, a buoyancy, a stubborn buoyancy about us. Uh, if you sink them, they keep coming back up. Um, it's like that thing I got for Christmas when I was a little boy, and no matter how many times you slugged it and it fell back, it came back. And I punched myself out hitting that thing because I just love that. But Christians who have hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ are like that. There's a buoyancy. There's a, 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 a rising again. Paul says it's hope. It's not optimism. Let nobody go away thinking this morning we're talking about just optimism. As a matter of fact, my thesis here is that Christian hope enables Christians to be joyfully pessim pessimistic about life. Christians have a hope that enables us to stop denying how much this life stinks. Think about that for a moment. Two weeks ago, I stood by the grave of my mother. It's my mother. My mother died. She left her body. And she went to be with Jesus. And standing by that grave, I started thinking a lot about this passage, which is why I'm preaching it today. Because death is a bully. Death has been bullying the human race ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And death is a horrible bully, an evil bully. And Paul in this passage actually personifies death. He speaks to death as if death is a person and death is a bully. In the seventh grade, I ran into my first bully. He was 17 years old in the seventh grade. He looked like he should have been in the band, Sha-na-na. He had his sleeves rolled up, and he kept his cigarettes in this sleeve rolled up, but you could still see him. And he had tats, and I'm talking about the 60s, man. This guy had tats on both arms in the seventh grade. He didn't have too many teeth, and the ones he had were brown. He combed his hair straight back and greased it. He rolled his pants up and he wore black boots. He looked like somebody who was trying to be Elvis Presley. His name was Robert Jackson. I did not like Robert Jackson. And Robert Jackson did not like me. And Robert Jackson on the bottom of those boots had taps. And you could hear him walking down the hall. You could hear him walking up behind you. And so one day, he decided to get in my face and let me know. He's very territorial, very bully. And he told me he was going to kick my you-know-what. And so I stood there petrified in fear until another 16-year-old in the seventh grade named Richard Humphrey, who actually was the son of a man who worked with my father, walked up to him and stood between me and Robert Jackson and said to him, if you touch a hair on his head, I'm going to kick your fill-in-the-blank. I want you to know that it was wonderful being delivered from that bully. <laughs> now, I wanted to get in his face when I got to be 16 or 17 because I knew I could snap him in half at that point. 
Never happened, though. I guess he went to prison or something. I'm not sure where he ended up. But he was a, he was a tough guy. He was in my face. And when I read this passage, it is as if Paul is saying to us that death is a bully. Death is an intimidator. Death is what everybody is afraid of. Ernest Becker, who wrote the book The Denial of Death and The Structure of Death, was a Jewish man, and he was an atheist, oddly enough. But he said more about death than anyone I've ever read. And what he said in that book, Denial of Death, is why are people so driven to have an existence that matters? Why are people doing heroic and grandiose and epic things? Why are people so, um, so intent on, on finding greatness in their place in the world? He said, when you peel the onion and all the layers go back, the reason why people are so driven to justify their existence is because they're scared to death of death. That's an atheist, a psychologist, telling us, that the great swallower intimidates us. And so you've got to understand something here. When Paul finishes this glorious chapter on the resurrection uh, at Corinth, where he's talked about the fact that we are going to have res resurrection bodies, that our, our uh, eternal existence will be an embodied existence, that the unnatural thing is for us to be separated from our bodies. But our bodies now are... are subject to the powers of sin and therefore as we age we don't see as well as we don't hear as well as our, our bodies deteriorate and they decline one of the greatest evidences of original sin is aging you know it takes a lot of courage to get older and we fight it don't we as much as we can but the most unnatural thing in the world is to have an existence that is not embodied. Christ didn't come just to save my soul. He came to save me and give me a new body, and I'm going to get everything back I've ever wanted and more, physically. And so the Bible doesn't laud the fact that death is some sort of uh, Aristotelian um, or some sort of uh, Socratic uh, uh, distinguishing or, or uh, separation of, of the body which is evil and the soul which is good. No, the great hope of the Christian is bodily resurrection. We will live forever in an embodied existence with a body just like Jesus Christ. And so death is an enemy. Death is unnatural. Death is a bully. Death comes to us and trash talks us. Death taunts us. Death teases us. But Paul is saying because of the resurrection of our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, the tables have been turned. Paul says now we can taunt death. We can do a victory dance in the face of death. When uh, my mother was buried and then, you know, the family usually goes somewhere and then we come back to the grave and have our last moments there. I didn't tell a soul this. I didn't even tell Pam this. I wanted to dance on her grave. He said, are you crazy? I said, no, I wanted to dance on her grave. One of my children, uh, not named Megan or Molly, <laughs> was in the first grade, and my wife took her to school, 
And Mary, at that time, was an extremely shy young girl, and she didn't want any unnecessary attention brought to her, okay? And she was terrified if anybody singled her out or she was noticed. And so my wife was driving her to school. She had it on the radio. It was playing some pretty good music. And, and as she pulled up to the school, Mary looked at her and said, Mom, turn the radio down. I don't want people to hear music in my car. And Pam said, I can't take this anymore. So she cranked the radio out, got out of the car in her robe and slippers, mind you, and danced around the car a couple of times. Pam, if I go before you, I want you to dance on my grave. I want you to dance on my grave. Probably won't have one, but dance anyway. Do that. Why? Because I am going to be with the one I love more than I can possibly say, Jesus. And the victory of Christ over Jesus gives me the confidence and hope to say so. Death has bullied us. Death has trash-talked us. Death, and now Paul turns around and calls death a wimp and a wuss. And he trash-talks death. You ever seen, uh, the biggest talker of trash I ever remember was Muhammad Ali. Nobody could talk smack like Muhammad Ali. And I loved watching him as a kid when he would go off on all these people he was fighting. And we see it in professional football when someone scores a touchdown and they spike the football. We see people do that, and it's, a, it's an attempt at intimidating or destroying someone's confidence or creating doubt and uncertainty and to gain the upper hand. And death has been taunting and trash-talking the human race up until this point. Paul says, one stronger has appeared and removed the stinger of death by absorbing the poison himself through his substitutionary death and glorious conquering resurrection he has gained a thorough and complete and total victory over everything that bound us sin law and death now let's unpack that a little bit paul tells us something very important here he says death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What is the sting of death? What is it? Well, the Greek word is kentron, and it means a bite of a venomous animal or insect that injects poison. So the very word for sting here is the word poison. Death is like a snake with poisonous things, but the poison has been removed. The bite, while painful, is harmless. We can dance on the graves of our loved one because death itself may be painful, but there's no poison in the bite. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, there is no poison in the bite. Now, why would he say something like that? What is he, what is he getting at? What is he driving at in saying that? Well, it's fascinating. Um... And, and the great power of it is in the concept of the sting being removed. Christ himself underwent on our behalf the curse and judgment of our sins. Um, Paul had seen the resurrected Christ, and through his death and resurrection, 
won the victory, and a harmless death is now well-founded reality for Christian believers. Death is now swallowed up by one greater. By going down into death and rising victoriously over it, he has conquered it forever. He has tasted death for us all, and he has arisen victoriously over it. We dread pain at death, but the sting is the curse of the law and unforgiven sin. Do you know what the sting is? It's objective guilt. That's what it is. The sting of death is not some sort of quasi-psychological pathology of guiltiness. No, it is objective guilt. We have sinned. And because we have sinned, the Bible says, there is judgment. The reason people fear death is, not because, is because really they hope for annihilation, but they know in their heart of hearts that they're going to face God. They're going to face God. And there's going to be judgment. And so what makes us terrified at death is unforgiven sin. And the sting of death in Jesus we we know as we see him praying in the garden of Gethsemane if there's any other way pa, pa, uh, father if there's any other way possible please take this cup from me nevertheless not what I will but as you will and so he goes to the cross on our behalf and he is forsaken and abandoned and the face of the father turned away from him in the terror of death and in all of the fullness he faced as the lamb of God the sin of every person who would ever trust and believe upon him. And therefore, he has removed the sting, the objective guilt of death, by removing it through his death. And now we have, instead of a terror in dying, we have victory, which is where the Greek word Nike or Nikos is used. Interesting. But he talks about this nexus of sin, law, and death. He says death is not a natural process. It's the result of sin. Sin gains a foothold in our lives by means of the law. Now, let me ask you this question. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures and secures our past and, and, and present salvation and future salvation how do you know that Jesus's death on the cross actually paid for your sins how do you know if it actually defeated sin how do you know the punishment was taken how do you know it's all paid so that if you believe in him there's no more condemnation for you how do you know well if somebody was in debt in those days, they were either in slavery or maybe in prison, and the way you could be sure that the debt had been paid was that they were released, and when they, uh, they were sprung, then you knew the debt, somebody had paid the debt. Of course, the wages of sin is death, and when Jesus Christ was sprung from death, when he burst the bands of death, that is proof that he has paid in full all that I owe, that my guilt is gone. Not because God winked at it and waved it by, but because Jesus absorbed it and took my punishment for me. Let's say you're in a shopping store. You're in a store. You got a bag. You, you bought some stuff 
from another store and you're walking around in that store and there's nothing more unfortunate or unpleasant than to have some plain clothesman or woman come up and say, did you really buy those things? Let me look inside your bag. Every time you go to Costco, this happens to you. And you're irritated. And you're feeling very bad, but what do you do? You reach in and you pull out the receipt and you say to that person, trouble me not. You say, be gone. Why? I have proof that your accusation toward me has no merit. It has no merit. Do you know how to do that with the resurrection? If you're a Christian, have you learned to do that yet? When your conscience goes after you, when you failed, you've done something really, really, really bad, and it's killing you. Are you a Christian? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Do you know how to look at your resurrection and say to the, or at his resurrection and say to your conscience, trouble me not, be gone. This is my receipt. This proves that it was paid in full. This stamps paid in full across history in such a way that nobody's ever going to miss it. Do you know how to do that? The resurrection not only assures us of past salvation, but it secures us of future salvation. Our future salvation is not just being forgiven and going and living in heaven as a soul. Our future is a resurrected body and the new heavens and the new earth, a place without suffering or death or weeping or tears. It's going to be beautiful. If you're a Christian, you know that you have been delivered. But Paul continues to talk about, as we look at the text, that sin gains a foothold by means of the law. Sin holds a powerful grip over us, and the law spells out the seriousness of that grip. The law commands, the law condemns us, but the law cannot enable us. So what is he saying? He's saying the strength or the power of sin is the law. What is it that makes us guilty? It's the law. The law exposes us. The law of God shows us our brokenness, our crookedness, our perversity, our sinfulness, our hard-heartedness. The law exposes, exposes. It commands us. It tells us the right thing to do. It's spirit it's holy, it's just, it's good, but it can't save us. It only makes the problem worse. Which is why trying to turn over a new leaf or promising myself that I'm going to get things in order and I'm going to turn things around is foolish. All the law can do is inflame the power of sin. All the law, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, even though the law is holy, just, and good, in the hands of the power of sin, not in the hands of the liberating spirit, but in the hands of the power of sin, all the law does is exacerbate your sin. It makes you more sin sinful, exceedingly sinful, Paul says. But Christ has taken the condemnation of the law against us upon himself, and he has given us his beautiful, perfect, sterling, glorious righteousness, and it becomes ours as much as if we lived it ourselves. And this is not some legal fiction. This is truth. 
This is truth. And that's why Paul could talk about victory. The law gives sin its condemning power. The law intensifies the uh, power. What is the ultimate pain in death? It is to die in bondage to sin and law under condemnation. But Paul does the victory dance here. If he had a fight song, I'm sure they would have played it. Uh, he does the victory dance. The victory has been won for us. Christ has propitiated our sin. He undermines the condemnation of the law. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we can face, even though death comes, Woody Allen used to say, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's us. It's still intimidating because you have that moment of not being sure. I don't know if I know for sure what's going on here. I don't know. I don't know. But when I read my Bible, I know that absence from the body is presence with whom? Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Paul had seen the living, resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul had been caught up into the third heavens and seen things that were not even lawful for him to utter. And this man says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? He's taunting that which has taunted us forever. And that's what makes Resurrection Sunday so exciting. No other religious leader, no other uh, savior of people has ever done anything like this. The resurrection assures our future salvation. And you know, even in this chapter, the Apostle Paul tells us that the resurrection is something that is historically verifiable. He was seen by Cephas, that's Peter. He was seen by the twelve, that's the apostles. He was seen by 500 people, most of whom are still alive. Richard Baucom, in his great book, Jesus and Eyewitnesses, points out that these are footnotes. See, if you're writing a serious academic work today, especially a historical work, you got to have footnotes. Why? Because your footnotes basically say, here's how you can find out what I'm saying is right. For example, if you say in such and such and such this happened, well, what, do you, what you do is footnote the historical register in this particular library where the original letter is or something like that. He says footnotes are ways for you to say to the reader what I'm saying to you is true. The footnote is the source from which you can find out what I'm telling you is true. In those days, if you were writing not legend, but history, how did you do a footnote? You said, here are the witnesses who are, are alive who saw it. Go check. These are footnotes. These are sources. Paul was saying that hundreds of people who saw Jesus with their own eyes, and he says, go talk to them. Many are still alive. It was only 20 years after that point, at this point. Do you know what that means? Paul is saying the resurrection is not a symbol. The resurrection is not a nice legendary story that has come to us down through the age. People saw him alive in a new body. And he ate with them. And he appeared in the room. And he had the scars in his hand. And they saw him. And they touched him. Amen. They saw him. 
And there were plenty of people who could have disproven this in that time. But he is alive. He is alive. The resurrection is not just a nice story. There's evidence. And the stuff you most long for in life, the kind of world you must long for, is there. Believe his gospel. But finally, he doesn't leave us merely with that. He says, all right, how are you supposed to live right now knowing this is true? Here's how you're supposed to live. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, for those who deny that there's any God, or for those who deny that, uh, you know, if, if, if you came from nothing, and when you die, you're headed to nothing, then have the guts to admit that your life is worth nothing now. But Paul is saying, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our labor is not vain, it's not empty, it's not futile. Our labor means something. What we do for Jesus. D.L. Moody, who was a shoe salesman, not a great theologian. D.L. Moody one time was, uh, he was in Chicago a couple of centuries ago, and he was a shoe salesman, and uh, somebody came to him one time and said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you talk about theology. Uh, uh, I don't like the way you do evangelism. I don't think you're theologically uh, accurate. And Mr. Moody replied to this man, he said, well, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way you don't do it. But Moody said this. <laughs> That's very pragmatic, wasn't it? <laughs> Moody said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are you doing for Christ? What are you doing for Christ? Now that you know your future is secure, now that you know that when you die, as uh, the poet George Herbert once said, death is no longer an executioner. Death is a gardener. All death does is plant you. And then when Jesus appears and calls you forth, you're going to burst forth like a beautiful seed that's planted. Or a seed's kind of ugly if you ask me. But what comes out of that seed? You go out in my backyard right now, and the brilliance of whatever kind of spring you can have in Nevada is happening. We had a lot of rain, so the rose bushes are going crazy. All these blooms and flowers are everywhere. They're beautiful. But three months ago, it didn't look like that. So when you go to the seminary, you know, uh, cemetery, excuse me, not seminary. Some think they're the same thing. But when you go, when you go to the cemetery, and you bury someone, they call that internment. They should call it planting if you're a Christian. Why? Because one day you're going to burst the bonds of that grave. One day your new body, transformed. The perishable will be imperishable. We will be changed. We will be made like him. And we will live with a body forever with Jesus. Hallelujah. And i got to tell you, this ain't wish fulfillment. <laughs> This is based upon reality and truth. 
And the resurrection is the necessary foundation for faithful action in this world. The resurrection of the dead serves as a warrant validating not only Christian preaching, but also the work of the Lord. Everything we do stands under the sign of Christ's resurrection, and all our actions are thereby given worth and meaning. The one who affirmed the truth of Christ's resurrection will be given the confidence to live in such a way that shows that their hope, their hope, that absolute certainty based upon compelling evidence is never in vain. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else, the moths will eat, the rust will corrode, and the thieves will break in and still what are you doing for Jesus are you talking to people about Jesus are you sharing the gospel with people are you engaging your community are you ministering to people who are broken and hurt are you giving of yourself and your time to minister to the lame the least the last the marginal the outcast are you giving are you spending yourself for him a hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest engine and motivator for us to serve him by giving ourselves for him. What are you doing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you for the power that's in it. We thank you for this good news today that the tomb is empty, that death has been conquered, that the great swallower has swallowed up the little swallower, and death no longer intimidates, bullies, and taunts us. But death becomes the one who is now taunted and teased because of the great reversal of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would write that indelibly upon our hearts and that our hope in the resurrection would drive us motivate us animate us energize us to do the work of the lord to do the work of the lord now fathers we continue to worship you may we give as people whose foundation is the glorious resurrection of jesus christ and we pray in his name amen